Hello and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues, and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carmo and I am a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in Neonatal Retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. Today my conversation is with Professor Martin Kluko, one of my PhD supervisors and a world-renowned neonatologist who has really helped to pioneer the use of clinician-performed ultrasound in the neonatal nursery. Whilst out on retrieval during my PhD, I remember I'd found my first set of parallel vessels indicating transposition of the great arteries, and I needed someone more senior than me to help confirm it. And unfortunately, Nick Evans' phone was far too rudimentary for image transfer, so I sent it to Martin, who immediately rang me back from his tour of the Tutankhamun in Egypt to talk me through the anterior aorta and the vessels arising. This gave me the courage to redirect the transport to the Paediatric Cardiac Centre, which was no mean feat as the cardiologists at that time were not really open to us scanning in those early days. So Martin, welcome. Oh, thanks Kath and very happy to be here talking on neonatal conversations. I might say that's not the first time that I've been interrupted on an overseas holiday and uh, there's a lesson in that for being too up to date with your technology. I mean it's better to have that excuse that I'm sorry I didn't get the call but I was quite happy to help you out on that occasion and uh, I think you went on and uh, have made a PhD out of that whole uh, little that, that area of uh, scanning babies and triage even prior to uh, admission to the intensive care unit at the Children's Hospital or a perinatal centre. Yeah, great. So I have to start with a disclaimer to this conversation as um, when I advertised that I was talking to you on Twitter and Facebook, I received quite a bit of correspondence. Um, so Martin and I are not talking about the ductus arteriosus today, and I know that's a bit like talking with a rock star and not talking about their biggest hit but their latest album, but I do want, don't want everyone hanging out for the answer to the duct, so my apologies. I'm taking Martin in a different direction today. So to start with Martin, can I ask you, how did you first come to medicine? What inspired you, and how did you end up in the boutique area of neonatology? And why on earth did you move from the world's most livable city, Melbourne, to live in Sydney, arguably one of the more tougher city environments? Well, as you say, Kath, I started off my uh, medical career in Melbourne, and uh, I think I chose medicine because, to me, it offered a broad range of different options. I mean, you can choose to be involved in direct patient care, but you can also be involved in specialties that don't necessarily have direct patient care, there is also the option for research and uh, in, in particular doing research and clinical patient care together in medicine and I think that uh, that broad broad series of options is really what attracted me into medicine. So I duly started medicine at the University of uh, Melbourne uh, and then proceeded on to my intern year at St Vincent's uh, in, uh, in, again in Melbourne. But all this time, uh, and during this time I met my, my partner, soon to become my wife and uh, her family were based in Sydney, so we were often visiting Sydney and uh, yeah. coming up and experiencing the warmer weather, the beaches, <laughs> Sydney Harbour, yeah. bush right next door. And in particular, we were sailing out on the harbour. And um, that it was that really, I think, that got me into Sydney is that there's few places in the world where you can go twilight sailing at the end of your workday and have a, a wonderful time out on Sydney Harbour. And I so we... Both my wife and myself came to Sydney and we knocked on the doors of 
of RPA and Royal North Shore Hospital who weren't really interested in trainees from Melbourne at that point and not much help, not much hope of getting on at the prestigious hospitals in Sydney. Right. So we went out west to uh, Westmead and uh, they, they welcomed us with open arms and uh, we were able to start training uh, in the various specialties that we were interested in. So I've started in paediatrics there and my first neonatal term uh, I did with uh, the senior on was a well-known Sydney paediatrician, now retired. And um, she had the two key factors uh, of learning to do neonatology covered, and that was she was incredibly procedurally competent, so there was never any problems with procedures on the shifts, and she got on really well with the neonatal nurses. So I think they're two things which are really important in enjoying your neonatal term as a beginner. And so I enjoyed it, and I then went on to uh, train in neonatology at the Children's Hospital uh, in the original campus at Camperdown, and then I moved to Royal Prince Alfred Hospital where I came across Nick Evans uh, and I undertook or developed my interest in ultrasound and cardiovascular transition and undertook a PhD with him. And it's all come nicely full circle now because Nick's now uh, semi-retired and guess what? He comes out sailing with me on our boat every Wednesday afternoon. So uh, that circle is nicely closed. Came to Sydney for sailing and we're still sailing now 25 years later. Yes. Wow. You make it sound very... Um relaxing a relaxing career choice which um, I'm sure it hasn't been at all times Um, so Martin you've really spent your career exploring the transitional circulation from those early days with Nick and we all continue to learn from your research and there is a vast body of work that we could discuss today but I wanted to focus on how the clinician helps to support the baby particularly the baby who has struggled in the birth process to cardiovascularly adapt having had their umbilical cord cut So now traditionally, if a baby was in trouble, especially during my training, um, during birth, we would quickly cut the cord and get the baby over to the resuscitator for the neonatal team to resuscitate. How did we decide that was the best thing to do? And what research led to that practice? Well, I think an important question. I think early uh, cord clamping was really introduced into uh, clinical care and obstetric management. Uh, some 40, 50 years ago without any uh, clinical practice. It was just thought that that was the best thing to to do uh, in, in in many ways uh, led by clinicians making make it maybe easier in their management to have more control over the situation. Mm. So there's little historical or physiological rationale, however. There were uh, some, some of the rationale was it reduced maternal postpartum hemorrhage uh, that it was removing the risk of anaesthetics uh, or um, pain-relieving uh, agents passing through into the baby. And there were also concerns about polycythemia and increased jaundice. And so that was the rationale for early cord clamping. And the main thing and thing that I think we're still struggling is with is we assume that the baby would be better off being cared for by a paediatrician uh, separated from the mother than having a deferral of cord clamping and clamping the cord often when the midwives would do it, which is when the pulsations had stopped. And so there was this, um, again, this uh, feeling that we knew better than nature and that we should be able to do a better job in, in resuscitating the baby rather than allowing the baby to self-transition. Yeah. So the midwives and the doers, um, I think um, they're quite pleased to see all this research come out, although I can, I, I know there's been a lot of eye-rolling, um, because they, they did really tell us that we should wait until the cord had stopped pulsing before cutting it. And um, the research has now finally caught up with that ancient kind of wisdom. 
So what is the plausible physiology regarding the best time to cut or clamp the cord? So the option of uh, later cord clamping has a number of potential benefits. It's not just all about the placental transfusion, and I think uh, we're starting to learn that now, that um, there are other benefits to waiting a minute or even longer than a minute before clamping the cord. And that's particularly so in the, in the, in the preterm infant who often has not initiated breathing in that first 30 seconds or 40 seconds when we, uh, by the time we've cut the cord. And we tend, we, we've um, extrapolated from our management of the, the term infant to the preterm infant that they are more likely to be apneic. And so the benefits of deferral include placental transfusion, and that was what we initially focused on when we, uh, the concept of reintroducing delayed cord clamping was introduced 10, 15 years ago. But there are other things that have come to light prevention of low blood flow, so potentially giving uh, more volume at birth, which might re then reduce uh, the incidence of low blood flow and the subsequent injuries that may occur from that. The concept of sequencing of the transition, so Jeffrey Dawes and his physiological approach showed that really the first thing in the transition is inflating the lungs or breathing and then pulmonary blood flow and the subsequent uh, cardiovascular transition. So it's uh, not physiological to clamp the cord before a baby has opened its lungs and started breathing. And then uh, there are two other concepts, uh, first of stem cell transfer and the effect of that. Uh, with early cord clamping, we may deprive the baby of uh, stem cells. And then the, the one that's a little bit scary for us as neonatologists, which is maybe we don't do better by removing the baby from the placenta and taking them to a resuscitare situation. And that may actually be excessive intervention, which may send a baby backwards. And that concept of supporting the transition rather than going into a delivery thinking that every baby needs resuscitation, bringing mm. back from the dead yep. resuscitation. Only a small number of babies are actually in that setting. Yes. Most of them need help or support through the transition. And deferral of cord clamping actually provides us with a bridge to that possibility so that babies can actually start to self-transition without us meddling in that first 60 seconds. And I think that's a big potential advantage. So it's sort of masterful doing nothing. Well, Alan Job put it as, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> yeah. And so what is the, what do you think the benefit is for that establishing respiration? How does that, what does that do to placental blood flow or the baby's blood volume? So, I mean, they're all, they're all related, all these things. So there may be multiple effects from deferring the cord clamping. There may be a little bit of transfusion. Uh, there may be the time that's providing the ability for the baby to self-transition. Uh, the transfer of stem cells that might reduce later onset sepsis. There's some evidence for that. Mm. So there's, there's a number of different uh, ways that the, deferring the cord clamping can help. So I suppose the premise is that the umbilical vein continues to drain into the baby and the arteries are continuing to drain away from the baby while it's still pulsing. But is there really a net gain for the baby's circulation when we delay the cord clamping? So this really moves into the area that we've coined the myth of placental transfusion. So it's assumed that the primary benefit of delayed cord clamping is a placental transfusion. But in fact, when you look at certain groups, for example, babies at caesarean section who had a, an incision into the uterus, there is no placental transfusion, but often they still get the benefits of a delayed cord clamping setting, even though there's no, it's, it's difficult to demonstrate a placental transfusion either by measuring haemoglobin or hematocrit or by measuring the weight uh, as a way of seeing if there's an increase in uh, mm. blood into the baby in the first minute after. 
So, uh, and also uh, general anaesthetic. Also, in uh, in our animal model, babies under general anaesthetic don't have a net placental transfusion. And when you think about it, that makes sense because it's, it's really quite difficult to understand why if you have a placenta and a fetus sitting in utero, there is no net accumulation of blood in that setting. Mm. Euvolemia is maintained. Mm. If you then just simply take the fetus outside of the uterus and then wait for a minute, why should there be accumulation of blood in the placenta? It must be being driven by other external things, and those sorts of things would include baby's breathing efforts, which can be positive in terms of creating negative intrathoracic pressure and bringing blood into the baby, but they also can be negative in, in that uh, positive pressure ventilation can interfere with, for example, umbil umbilical venous drainage and prematurely stop that. So there are other things that are happening which may dictate how much about the placental transfusion, but it's not just a spontaneous reaccumulation of blood in the fetus from the placenta. There's other things, and we need to understand those elements uh, better. So one other side of that might be uterine contractions, for example, uh, and, and the effect they have on the um, uh, placental uh, transfusion. And then there's other things that might happen, for example, differential umbilical artery and umbilical venous flow. So if the artery closes off, constricts off before the vein, then we're going to have a net loss. Uh, that, that potentially is a net gain of blood into the baby, loss from the placenta. Equally, if the young glycal vein, vein is clamped off or constricts down before the artery does, then we get the opposite. So we get loss of blood from mm -hmm. the baby. And there's been some clinical studies looking at the, the timing of closing off of the umbilical vein versus the umbilical artery and showing that there often can be 30 seconds a minute difference between those, which could be enough to account for blood flow differences. Mm, that might be a natural phenomenon. Yes. And so what do you think happens when the uterus contracts? What happens to the blood flow then? I imagine the arterial flow might, away from the baby, might be prevented. Yes, so, and that is what's been seen, is that there, that there's very, there's, it's, again, it's variable, it's the effect on the umbilical artery and vein uh, can be variable. But overall, uh, the use of, for example, syntocinol into, um, uh, in to cause uterine contraction hasn't actually had an active effect on the extent of placental transfusion, for example. Mm. As measured, some uh, some of the clinical studies have used weight differences, and certainly the study from Nesta Vein looking at the use of syntocinol in women before or after deferred cord clamping showed no increase in the placental transfusion, Ooh. but it also didn't interfere with the change in weight that they saw. So right. there is so, uh, and I've already mentioned that if you have a cesarean section with an incision where you actually stop the contractions, that can also change the balance between the umbilical artery and umbilical venous uh, flows. So trying to understand that is part of understanding the benefits of deferral of cord clamping. So when you have a caesarean, then what, what, in how, how does it impair the flow? Well, in caesarean section, we don't get a difference in flow or in weight of baby. So, right. so it seems that uterine contraction is an important part of the accumulation of blood in the baby rather right. than in the placenta. Right. And if you don't have that, then you don't actually get a difference in weights, for example, if you're using that as your measure of blood transfer, which is what's been done in a number of the clinical studies. Right. So it might be another reason that if you do a caesarean section, you've got to do it quickly because the baby's not getting any net gain while you're under yeah. anaesthetic. So that's what we, yeah, so that's what the, the, the clinical studies have found. We've also done. I'm involved in an animal laboratory where we can look at some of this physiology more carefully. 
and we found that found the same thing in a in a in a um, the setting of a general anaesthetic in a cesarean section is that we don't get net transfer of blood into uh, the fetus in that setting. So whilst in the setting of a normal vaginal delivery, there is uh, fairly consistent evidence that there is a higher hematocrit and a placental transfusion that occurs. Um, there is this a concept which is an interesting one, a bit counter, which has again been developed by the lab I work with in Melbourne, the Stuart Hooper's group, looking at this concept of placental restoration. So it may be actually that in the setting of a vaginal delivery, uh, when there's been interference with the um, blood flow from the fetus to the placenta intermittently because of normal contractions and development of acidosis, and in fact what may have happened is the fetus may have actually pushed some of its blood volume into the placenta during the normal labour process. And then at birth, there's a restoration of that blood from the placenta. So it's not actually a placental transfusion, but it's a restoration of blood into the fetus who had been a little bit acidotic and vasoconstricted. So that may be why we actually see more of a transfer in the setting of normal vaginal delivery, not necessarily because of a positive transfusion, but because of a restoration process, which is not seen in the setting of an elective caesarean section where there's been no labour and no opportunity for the fetus to push blood out to the placenta. Right. How's that so the concept, Kath? You're looking very puzzled. There. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine the um, if you've got a baby who's acidotic, though, often their circulations laying is can be constricted, but often it lay, the tissues are laying open because they're thinking, "Give me some perfusion. I'm starving mm. here." Mm. So maybe that's part of the restoration. It's possible. Yeah. Also leads on to that the whole issue of whether transfusion does actually affect blood flows, in particular superior vena carval flow, and I'm sure we'll talk about that soon, but yeah. uh, the S- SVC flow uh, and cardiac output and how that's affected by uh, deferred cord clamping uh, is part of this, because uh, we know that babies uh, who are have impaired or difficult deliveries often will have low cardiac outputs and low superior vena carval flows, and some of that may relate to the transfer of blood at the time of birth or lack of. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a lot to think about. Um, so what about the positioning of the baby? I know when I, my, I had my babies, the obstetrician held the Xavier up so that I could see him. Um, does that help or hinder the net flow? What does gravity do? So there's been quite a lot of work done on gravity, and the concept is that if you lift the baby up, uh, then baby suddenly all the blood drains out of the baby into the placenta and you're looking at a nice pale baby, but at least you're seeing your baby, which is good. <laughs> Um, however, when we've actually done clinical studies in, in humans and uh, also in animal models, we found no effect of small increments. So putting the baby, for example, on the mum's abdomen rather than at the introitus. Uh, again, a nice clinical study from the uh, South Americans, Nestor Vane and his group, showed that there was no difference in the baby's weight gain from zero to two minutes whether they're on the mum's abdomen or whether they're at the introitus. So that's a small increment, but that gravity made no difference in that setting. Mm. We've done a similar experiment in lambs where we've put the lamb 10 centimetres above the placenta or 10 centimetres below the placenta, and we haven't seen any net change in blood. What we did see, though, which I think is really important, is that if you suddenly lift the lamb up and if you actually measure what happens in that moment, there is a dumping of blood down into the placenta, as you might imagine, with a sudden change. Mm. But within about 60 seconds or less, the fetus and the placenta have sorted out that 
difference between them. And we're back to euvolemia again. Mm. So I think that there is a euvolemic process happening there, trying to keep the relationship in between the two. And if you lift the baby up, sure, there may be some blood loss, but then you'll get constriction in your umbilical veins again, and you'll get more blood coming out through the umbilical arteries. And that apparent loss is quickly made up such that it becomes not clinically relevant. It recovers. So euvolemia is maintained most of the time with right. position changes. Do you mean the arteries contract so the blood coming away from the baby is prevented? Yes, yes. Yeah. If the baby's lost through the vein, then the artery contracts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it is. I'm sure the obstetricians listening to this talk would, um, if there are any, would um, say that, of course, they clamp, they double clamp the cord before they lift the baby up and yes. show the mother. Yeah. So therefore that's not an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about, you talked a little bit about the active management of stage three, and we all know this is a fraught time for mothers and um, we give Syntocin on to prevent the postpartum hemorrhage. Um, is there anything, any more we need to know about the contraction of the uterus? So I think we, we mentioned that a bit earlier, but uh, certainly the delayed cord clamping studies in general haven't reported the use of oxytocin. So it's been an area which is a little bit of a mystery still. But there is that clinical study from Nesta Vane's group which showed that giving oxytocin for um, the delayed cord clamping period or after the delayed cord clamping period made no benefit, made no difference. There was no benefit or uh, harm to doing that. And we've similarly done a similar study in LAMS again which showed that the actual giving of oxytocin and potentially increasing uterine contraction didn't make any, didn't enhance or reduce the placental transfusion. Mm, so that's kind of reassuring, isn't it? Because mm. we're giving it to prevent um, problems for the mother and if we had any evidence that it was affecting the baby, we might get pushback from mothers. Yes. So that's some um, really good research to have out there. So Martin, a lot of your early work and PhD was around SVC flow and the low flow state that extremely preterm babies suffer in their first 72 hours of postnatal life. And we touched on it earlier, but your, your research demonstrated that, that in babies without the benefit of antenatal steroids who are at risk of low systemic blood flow, and it is during that recovery phase from that low flow that they're at increased risk of intraventricular hemorrhage. So has delayed cord clamping been able to prevent this low flow state and therefore intraventricular hemorrhage? So the initial uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses of the cord clamping trials in the preterm infant, uh, one of the main exciting things that it showed was a reduction in interventricular hemorrhage. And originally or initially that was it was not entirely sure what the mechanism was for that reduction in IVH, but it was clearly there across a number of uh, studies. And so that prompted uh, a number of clinical groups to measure the um, superior intercarbal flow and cardiac output in babies who had undergone delayed or early cord clamping to see if there was any difference. The reason SVC flow was chosen as a measure in those studies was because we and others have shown that there is a relationship between low SVC flow and intraventricular hemorrhage, and it made some sense that if there was a placental transfusion occurring with increased cardiac output, that would then reduce SVC flow, which then would reduce IVH, and that would be the rationale about how deferred cord clamping would result in reduced interventricular hemorrhage. So the first couple of studies that were done uh, showed, in fact, showed that, that there was a reduction in the superior venocarbal flow in babies who had had early cord clamping compared to those where there'd been a deferral of the cord clamping. However, as we came into the modern era and did bigger and larger studies in, uh, in a more heterogeneous group of uh, infants, 
that um, difference in SVC flow was not as easily demonstrated. So the last and largest study that looked at that was uh, our own Australian placental transfusion study. And there was a sub-study in that um, looking at the blood flows in the two groups of babies. And there we weren't able to demonstrate any difference in the SVC flow, though we did demonstrate a difference in the right ventricular outputs, uh, interestingly, in favour of early cord, trans early, uh, cord clamping. So the reason for that's not entirely clear why that hasn't been consistent, but I think it, as it is with many other clinical areas, this enrolment of babies who aren't so sick um, and aren't so small and are having a much bigger range of babies sometimes means that you lose the, the signal uh, that you're interested in. Uh, and so we... Um, so at the moment, it's not entirely clear the effect of that. I mean, it's, uh, it's variable across studies, but the biggest studies have not shown improvement in SVC flow. And equally, they haven't shown a reduction in IVHs either. And mm. that may be just because they're larger, more heterogeneous group of babies with less incidence of some of these pathologies. Yes, yeah, so I think subsequent studies to yours, um, we had much better antenatal steroid coverage, didn't we? And, yes. and the incidence of low flow state was much less. So do we know in the cohort that was done by um, Himanshu Poppet and his team in 2016, did they, did, is there a cohort within that cohort that weren't antenatally steroid covered that we could look at? Uh, there is, uh, but it's such a small, it's a small yeah. percentage. So the number of babies, because they already, it already was a concentrated cohort from the whole study, so the number of babies is really not big enough to be looking for those post hoc associations. Mm. Uh, probably better to again, do a prospective trial where we can be more definitive about that rather than doing a post-hoc analysis. Yeah, where we can target babies who have low flow initially. Yeah. Um, yeah, which gets on to another area of interest for me, which is that we really uh, need to be targeting our populations a little bit better in physiological subgrouping of babies, spending the resources up front to separate babies out before we randomise them rather than randomising them and then having to have large numbers to randomly be able to assess a particular subgroup of babies. Yeah, I think the antenatal steroid coverage in Australia is um, so extraordinary, really, isn't it? Mm. It's about 90%, I think, of preterm yes. babies have antenatal, benefit of antenatal steroids. <clears throat> so putting all this together, if, if you're the resuscitating clinician waiting anxiously at the resuscitator for the arrival of a fetus who's known to be in distress and in need of your advanced resuscitation skills, when do you advise the um, obstetric team to clamp the cord of the apneic infant and what effect will that have on our effective resuscitation? So Alan Job, one of uh, our best-known neonatologists, uh, again had another classic line around this and said there is nothing more dangerous to the preterm lung than an anxious physician with an endotracheal tube and a bag. <laughs> And I suppose that what he was saying here is that the need for resuscitation needs to be assessed and sometimes having a little bit of time will enable a baby to initiate the transition themselves. Mm. And as we've already said, that um, time can single out babies who are able to support their own transition versus babies who need resuscitation. And if we look at studies where babies have not been interfered with and they've been allowed to transition themselves, in the first 10 seconds, only 10% of babies, premature babies, under 30 weeks, have taken a breath. Whilst if you wait till 60 seconds, which is the time we might wait till full delayed cord clamping, 
90% of babies have taken at least one breath. And so those babies who've taken a breath, they're, they're actually, in my mind, easier to resuscitate. Mm. Once you have a, or, a, or to support the transition on, we should probably be saying. Once you've taken a breath and you've opened up your glottis, if you put a mask on gently, so that you don't want to bring a diving reflex on and send the baby backwards, so, and then expose them to positive pressure and or oxygen, you've got access to the lung if they're spontaneously breathing. Really, intubation is bypassing the epiglottis, and mm. you're doing that if you can't get the epiglottis open. Mm. One of the ways that it may not open is if you actually vaguely stimulate the baby in your own attempts to suction and or intubate a baby. Mm. And so deferral of cork clamping, interestingly, one of the other benefits is that it enables a baby to actually be spontaneously breathing more often by the time they come to you, and therefore supporting the transition becomes easier and they're more likely to end up on non-invasive ventilation, in my observation, than invasive. And so that's an area of interest at the moment because that may be a benefit of deferral mm. of cord so, clamping. So that's really interesting. So um, I just need to repeat those statistics again. How many at 30 seconds have had their first breath? At 10 seconds, yeah. only 10% of babies yeah. have taken the first breath. This and, is preterm babies less than 30 weeks. And at 60 seconds? 90% of babies have. Right, so we really need to be encouraging people to wait the 60 seconds to see if they'll spontaneously breathe before. And it's easier to wait when you have a baby attached to a placenta where they're still getting yes. uh, a flow of warm, oxygenated blood. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the things we've had to deal with in the, um, the Australian Placental Transfusion Study and other trials of early cord clamping is this bailing out of the one-minute deferral because of concerns about the baby, yes. whether they be colour concerns, whether they be heart rate concerns, whether they be activity concerns. And I think as time goes by, people become more confident in that babies are able to look after themselves for that minute and that it, there's more harm to avoiding a one-minute uh, one delay, delay of cord clamping than there is from the immediate early cord clamping. And as we know, the, the trials have shown that there is definite benefits to waiting. I guess I guess for the clinicians who are delivering these babies, though, if you if you have fetal distress in any way and you have a baby arrive that's sort of pale and floppy in your hands as an obstetrician, um, you can understand the placenta is in some ways has dysfunctioned, and so um, it, it, it is difficult to ask the obstetrician to hold that baby for 60 seconds rather than clamp the cord and give it to the neonatologist to sort it out. Mm. So I guess there's a bit of tension there, isn't there? Sure, um, and this this is one of the challenges of um, of the area in delaying cord clamping is is how to identify a baby who really does need resuscitation. And I suppose the corollary of that is does one minute really make a difference because there are many minutes in the preparation for an um, emergency caesarean section and this is just one of them. But it's probably the most important minute from exteriorization of the fetus to clamping of the cord and there are things that might happen in this period that if we do early cord clamping we miss out on. Mm. Uh, that leads into the whole discussion which is happening at the moment is what about initiating the resuscitation steps if they felt necessary whilst the baby is still attached to the placenta and the umbilical cord. Mm. And again that's a whole new area of research which yes. is uh, becoming of interest but it's a complicated area as well because there's a lot of uh, management that needs to occur to enable the baby to be resuscitated, attached to the umbilical cord, often specialised equipment, etc. ways to assess the baby. 
But they're some of the challenges into the future. If we sort of take a lot of this to its natural conclusion, if we want to leave more and more babies attached to the cord for 60 seconds, we may need to be able to offer the initial resuscitation steps whilst attached to the cord. Mm. There's, there's a new invention called the Concord table that they're doing lots of research on, yes. isn't there? Yes. And so I guess if the cord is still pulsating, then you should be happy that the baby's still getting placental blood flow and it should be okay. But I guess sometimes the, perhaps yeah. the placental function doesn't seem to be present yeah. and that's a concern. Um, all right, so... So we know that not only does the placental blood provide volume that's rich in stem cells, as you mentioned earlier, so early cord clamping might also deprive the newborn of this source of stem cells. And what effects have we has the research shown us about that? Is there anything out there? So there has there is some evidence that stem cells are part of the transfer from the uh, placenta to the fetus that occurs in that one minute. Mm. Um, Interestingly, and there is, in clinical studies, there is some evidence of reduction in the risk of sepsis in the babies who receive the deferral of cord clamping, but it hasn't been consistent through all the studies, but there's certainly some studies that have shown that. I think the thing that's of most interest is uh, actually looking at cord blood banking of stem cells, and that group have actually, because there's a tension between uh, obtaining stem cells from the placenta in babies who've had an early versus deferred cord clamping. Early cord clamping is when you normally would do it if you were going to harvest stem cells for the various purposes they might be using. Mm. But if you do a delay of cord clamping for one minute, what effect does that have on stem cell collection? And those uh, the stem cell banks have done some research on that. And interestingly, the longer you wait till clamping of the cord, the less likely you are to obtain a usable unit of stem cells. Mm. And for them, that was a concern in terms of the uh, the stem cell banking history because you can't get enough cells to make a usable unit from. But if you just flip that round the other way and look at it from the baby's point of view, mm. in fact, what's happening is that presumably stem cells are going into the baby. That's why they're not available for cord blood banking. Mm. Uh, and so this is a baby who is missing out on its own stem cells in the interests of some other altruistic uh, result from the stem cell, the cord stem cell cord banking. And so uh, there are some that have gone so far as to say that uh, we are stealing from the baby its own stem cells. Um, now, if you're early cord clamping, that doesn't matter because you're throwing that all away anyway. But if you're, def- if you're more aware of this and you're using deferral of cord clamping, then some of those stem cells are moving into the, the baby. I think this is something we need to think about a little bit more. It brings up quite a few ethical issues as well. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. Um... So now bringing this all together, just to make it clear for those of us on the resuscitator, you talked a little bit about what you would do with a preterm baby, but say you've got a term baby and their CTG is awful and you've been called to the resuscitation, um, what do we tell the obstetrician then? Because I imagine um, most obstetricians would want to get the baby out and to the neonatologist as soon as possible. Can we delay that cord clamping? So that's really looking at um, the concept of what happens in asphyxia. And sometimes there's been placental failure, an yes. abruption or uh, some there's a, a significantly impaired placenta. So I think that in that setting it's difficult to be able to justify deferral of cord clamping because you're not going to get that transfer of blood, yeah. stem cells, transitional the transitional benefits. Uh, so the question is, and so, so the, the default position would be early cord clamping across to the resuscitator 
this is a baby that really needs our help and uh, we will be better off doing that. Mm. But even that now is being challenged a little bit and um, we have some initial data from our animal studies which has just recently been published looking at uh, the effects of clamping of the umbilical cord in an infant, in this case an animal infant, so it's from the animal laboratory, who has not opened up their pulmonary circulation, has not had the opportunity to get pulmonary blood flow going. So they're basically missing a big sink of the circulation where pressure and flow is often or usually distributed into when the lungs are open. So in the setting of an asphyxiated infant, they usually have not got their lungs open early on, they're not crying, and we're going to cut the cord and take them to a resuscitator to enable that to happen. So what we found if we uh, measured blood flow and blood pressures in these infants is if you clamp the cord in an infant without an open pulmonary circulation, the blood pressure overshoots significantly by at least 50%, in some cases 60 to 70% over the normal blood pressure, just simply from clamping the cord and imposing that increased systemic vascular resistance because you've removed the low resistance placenta. And further to that, we also looked at the brains of these animals who'd had that surge in blood pressure with mm. an early cord clamp, and we could see early evidence of uh, leakage and blood products around the uh, brain cells and blood vessels. Uh, compared to uh, a group of infants where we opened up their lungs first whilst they were still on the cord. So artificially positive pressure. Yeah, intubated, opened up their lungs, so what they had now had pulmonary blood flow working for them. Mm. And then we clamped the cord. And then we got nowhere near that overshoot of blood pressure uh, and not so much injury in the brain. And so I think that, uh, and the other, I suppose the other concern in an asphyxiated infant is the lack of, or potential lack of autoregulation. So a sudden pressure surge, which might otherwise be dealt with well mm. in an intact autoregulation setting, may actually uh, cause injury or harm. Mm. So that's some animal physiology and rationale. We're not yet ready to move that into the clinical field as yet. Uh, but it does open that door for discussion about whether we should be, again, initiating the resuscitation for an asphyxiated infant with an intact cord to try and protect from some of these rapid physiological changes, mm. particularly in the setting of, a, of, a, of an infant who's got impaired autoregulation. Mm. Yes. I'm not recommending <clears throat> that we do that yet. Yeah, no. It's, but we it need to like a... investigate a bit further. Yeah, mm. so, I mean, that moves me on to my next question and probably... My final question, so I always ask the same questions here, Martin. Um, where, do you, where would you like to see the research go next and how can we improve things for babies and their families? And I guess um, the things we've talked about is like the frontier of resuscitation and um, there's lots of, um, you have, I'm sure you've got lots of ideas about where the research should go next. So I think um, we need, we've talked about some of these, but we need to be able to um, tease out, is it, a transfusion or is it the timing which is important uh, and to do that we need to develop ways of assessing uh, if there is actually a, a blood volume transfer occurring uh, so we've already looked at doing ultrasound of the umbilical vessels as one way of measuring that mm. but I wonder whether we need to look more carefully at measuring flow changes across the umbilical cord can we get a little ultrasonic ring or something we can put around the cord that will actually tell us about blood flows to and from so that we can make a, a decision about we're actually whether we're getting uh, blood flow into the baby and we should persist. Uh, there's uh, looking at um, uh, the stem cell, stem cells and is that an issue that's important? So we need to be able to 
we haven't really done studies looking at the transfer of stem cells and the percentage of cells that may have been transferred into a baby. How do we measure those? Uh, we need to understand a little bit more about the benefits of spontaneous breeding uh, and in particular the, the sending backwards of babies who, uh, are, uh, for example, have a mask put on or suction. Can we do better in the delivery room? Uh, is there equipment that might be more appropriate for the delivery room? Uh, for example, what we tend to do is bring our NICU equipment into the delivery room and assume that it's going to be just as useful there. But the physiology in the delivery room is really quite different. We've got fluid-filled lungs transitioning, the pressures that we use, our targets, our saturation targets, for example, are different. Um, are we measuring them accurately with our current pulse oximeters because they're lower than the normal saturations? So there's really a whole um, uh, set of research to be done about the equipment that we use in the delivery room. And is it really appropriate, fit for purpose? Because we've just bought it in from the neonatal unit and said this will work. Uh, so I, th I think there's research to be done there. Um, and then there's we've mentioned about the asphyxiated baby and whether there um, is... A role for uh, delayed cord clamping there. How do we assess the baby? How do we decide which babies need immediate clamping of the cord? So there's a lot, lot to be done in the delivery room, and some of that's some of the, a lot of that's being done already. There are various trials underway uh, to look at mm. many of these elements uh, worldwide. So. Yeah, certainly a comprehensive list and lots of um, ideas for our young researchers to consider there. So. So secondly, and probably lastly, clearly you're a man, and I do know you have a home full of gorgeous, talented women. So can I ask you, how do you think gender has affected your career and family life, and do you think we could be doing better in that regard? So as you allude to, I, I do have a wife and three daughters, and they're all uh, trained professionally and uh, led by the role model, of course, of mum. Uh, so I don't think I've had too much uh, role modelling there. Well, maybe I have, I don't know, but uh, up to them to judge. But my girls have had some great opportunities to complete training in medicine and uh, law. Uh, and sure, they've come across uh, discrimination. They've come across times where uh, uh, there have been gender differences which have upset them, concerned them, uh, but they're strong enough to be able to uh, push through that and resolve those issues. And so hopefully have educated a few males along the way. Uh, personally, I don't feel as though I've, I've, not, I've been particularly affected by gender uh, differences. I haven't been aware in my area, being paediatrics and neonatology, of a lot of, uh, of issues there, but I'm sure there are some from the point of view of women. I mean, we have some advantages in that there. I think that the specialty of paediatrics particularly is, is now dominated by women uh, generally, and I think that creates a supportive atmosphere for the, uh, the more junior uh, female groups coming through. Um, so I think to me, it's, it's my, my girls are really uh, very cognizant through social media and other, others of, of what their rights should be and, and ways to address the issues they might come across. Uh, I think the you know, Me Too campaign and calling out of bad behaviour, clearly that's medicine is not free of it. In fact, maybe uh, you know it has a significant number of issues, particularly in some areas. And I think that uh, educating our young women in how to manage that and call it out, and giving them ways to do that, uh, is a very important step forward in the last few years. And certainly, all my girls are very good at doing that. 
And what about what about all male panels? How do you, how do you approach that if you're being asked to um, participate in an all male panel? Uh, well, I rarely would comment on that, Kath. So uh, and and would rely on the organisers to uh, be choosing the people who are best for the conference. Uh, I think that I mean the question about positive discrimination to ensure that there's uh, equal representation of male and female is not something that's come through in in, you know, in our area. So uh, mm. I think it's you know, it's worth thinking about because there's certainly uh, you know, many outstanding female researchers and speakers uh, and there's no reason why uh, panels shouldn't be made up of uh, an equal group, uh, gender, gender equal. So would encourage that, but have it, I don't actually... If I'm organising a conference myself, maybe, but I haven't called people out on that uh, or asked them, why is there only males on this panel? Hmm. Maybe we should do that a bit in the Perhaps future. a challenge for you in the future, yes. Thanks for bringing that up here. <clears throat> so thanks, Martin. It's always a pleasure doing business with you. You've very, been a very wise mentor for me and for many others, and we all appreciate your great intellect and patient and gentle approach with our small patients. Thank you so much for the work you do every day to make our, the lives of children better. And thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today. Thank you for having me, Kat. If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter at Neoconversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn.